Because I do believe this is God's holy and infallible word, I do want to pray one time before we examine it. Let's pray to the Lord together. Lord, as we look at your word, these are deep truths. This is you speaking to us uh, from the unreachable world to our here physical existent world. May your words come true to us. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you want to turn there in your bulletin on page 3 and 4 and follow along or in your Bible. This is a section of scripture where um, the narrator is uh, going through the life of David and telling us how the kingdom is coming, how uh, God is establishing his king. This, this is the whole message of the life of David. God is going to build a kingdom and he's going to build it through a king. And he's going to build it through the ideal king. And David is in so many ways a picture of an ideal king. Now that's a significant thing for you to know. Because redemption in Christianity in so many ways, and this is sort of distant to us because of our American democracy, but that God wants to remake you into a king. That is somebody who will live the way humans are designed to live. Someone who will live before God, who will do the justice, who will live for peace, who will live for righteousness, who will establish things the way they are meant to be. And God is, if you're a Christian, God is remaking you into that. And so a picture of David's life is in so many ways a picture of what God wants to remake you into. But it's also a foreshadowing of a true and better king because none of us will ever live up to this kingship. And so we find ourselves in 2 Samuel right after God has rejected Saul and Saul has died in battle and David has not he's been anointed but now he's been installed as the true king of Israel and so let's read this together this is 2nd Samuel chapter 6 this is the whole chapter David again gathered around all those chosen men of Israel 30,000 and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the Lord. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and with lyres and with harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there because of the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. That place was called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Three months, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. 
And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out into the window and saw, saw David, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought her in, excuse me, they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished burnt offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children till the day of her death. This is God's word. Maybe one of the more shining moments of my uh, college career was when uh, a girl who I met at the church that I attended in college invited me to go to her high school prom with her. And so I uh, elected to go to her uh, prom as a freshman in college. And I went there, and the music kicks on, and it's dancing. And I don't know how to describe it any more simply than this, but I was the star of the night. I mean, I was like in the middle of the dance floor and high school students around me who I had no idea where they were are like chanting my name, celebrating me. That that will lift your self-esteem for years um, when high school students are, are screaming for you. But, you know, the reason I was able to do that is just freely go out is because I, I had no idea who those people were. I, mean, I, I just didn't care. I, I had learned my freshman year of college to be a little bit snobby in this, but you just kind of stop caring what high school students think of you and all your peers. And you're just kind of in the moment and you go, I care more about having fun and enjoying this than I do about what you think about me. And what you think about me is not going to paralyze me from doing what I want to do right now. And so I just went out and did it and it was completely free. And the date thought she thought I was the greatest date she could have ever had. And everybody was jealous for me. It was a great night. Now, the reason I tell you this is, look, I really think that Christians are meant to be free. That you are meant to be free to dance in life. And I don't mean literally, but I do mean sort of metaphorically, that you are meant not to have the paralyzing idea of what somebody thinks about you, or all the fears that sort of encapsulate our lives, make you stand to the side of the dance floor of life. You are meant to be free and to go out and live as God wants you to live, to live life, to live freely, to enjoy relationships, enjoy people, not paralyzed by what everything and everyone thinks about you and measures up to you. In a word, I think that's really called biblical humility. Now, when I say humility to you, 
many of us sort of uh, don't make that connection because when we think of humility, what we think of is sort of self-deprecating, self, self-loathing, kind of self-destroying um, when somebody compliments us. It's like, you know, oh, you're an amazing piano player. No, no, I'm not. I'm really not good. But, you know, when we do that, I'll, that's not humble. We're just fishing for more compliments. It's like, you're amazing. No, I'm really not. Yes, you are. Oh, you're so kind. That's not humility. And that, that is self-deprecation for the sake of, of trying to get more and more compliments. Humil- humility is not thinking less of yourself. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not thinking more of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And what he calls it, in a word, this is what Lewis says humility is. It's blessed self-forgetfulness. It's when you go out into life and you interact with people, you interact with, with things, and you, you know, you, the whole inner monologue of you doesn't exist anymore. And that's where freedom comes from. Now, how do we do that? Well, I would argue to you this morning that that's only possible through the gospel. You can't train yourself to do that. You can't discipline yourself to do that. You can't teach yourself to do that. It is only through the experience of the gospel. And I want to show it to you through four things. The presence of the ark, the death of Uzzah, the blood of the animal, and the dance of David. It's the presence of the ark, the death of Uzzah, the blood of the animal, and then the dance of David. First, the presence of the ark. If you look back, it says this in verse 2. And David arose and with all the people who were with him from Bela Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts. That, okay, David wants to bring the ark into the city of David, into Israel, as his first act of king. And I think it's this, the bringing of the presence of the ark. It's the ark going into Israel. It's David seeing this and tasting this is what frees him up, is what makes him dance, is what sort of makes him into the king that you and I long to be. I know that you long to be more free than you are in life. I know that you long to sort of rid yourself of the misery of the jury of peers that evaluates you all the time, whether it be in your job, how you look, what your home looks like, how you interact at work, how you interact here this morning. I know we long to be free of that. And I think what it is for David is it's the presence of the ark that comes into his life that changes this for us. And that's extremely counterintuitive and different than how we go about that in modern society. For us in modern society, freedom does not come, for most of us, through the presence of something. We think it comes from the presence of nobody. But freedom is, is, comes from, the, from no presence. It's like when nobody has a voice in my life, that's when I'm free. When nobody can tell me what to do, that's when I'm free. When nobody is sort of hovering over me, that's when I'm free. That, and that's why like college for us, for many students, is like freedom. But you know where that all, also to all, just always takes you? Is it takes you like into where the wild things are, where Max goes. You remember Max, where the wild things are? He looks at his mom, and he does not want, he does not want to do what she wants him to do. He says, no, 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 no. And so he imagines this entire like make-believe world, which is sort of a picture of freedom. It's, you know, I want to roam where I want to roam. I want to do what I want to do. I want to be the king amongst wild things. But where does that take Max? It takes him exactly where it takes you and I when there's no presence in our life. It just makes you lonely. And you just want to go back home and eat your dinner. It just makes you lonely. But look, freedom does not come from no presence in your life. It comes from the right presence in your life. And so what David does 
is his first act of king as he says, we have to get this ark back to Israel. We've got to take it back. And so what he does is he, they go to war and they go capture the ark from the Philistines. If you go back and you read all of First and Second Samuel, you'll notice that the Philistines actually capture the ark from Israel in First Samuel. And, and Israel is without it. And it's sort of a huge kind of political um, agenda for them to get the ark back. And so what David says is we've got to go capture that. We've got to go bring it back. It's his first act. It's the biggest deal for him. Now, what's the significance of the ark? Well, the ark, we're even told what it is, if you don't know, in verse 2, when it says that the ark, they brought the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, okay, many of us think the ark is, is something that we've seen, you know, in uh, Indiana Jones and the, the Lost Ark. You know, like God sort of comes out of the ark, and there's this scary thing, just don't open it. That's not what the ark was. The ark is not something where God like hid in the box. It was his seat. It's where he sat. And it said in the middle was God's seat. And on all four sides was a cherubim that sat there glorifying. And it was a picture of this is the king. This is the one to rule. And God said, you must take me wherever you go. Because my presence is ultimately significant. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice every time Israel has the ark, great things happen to them. And every time they don't have it, something terrible happens to them. You know, they, they have the ark, they go up to the Jordan River, and the, the river parts. You know, they have the ark, and God says, just march around the walls of Jericho. And the walls come tumbling down. Then there's a story in the beginning of First Samuel where the sons of Eli want to go into battle, and they just neglect the ark. They say, we don't need it. And they all get killed. Every time the presence of the ark is with somebody, amazing things happen. And every time they leave it out, destruction happens. The point is this. You can't ever get into the presence of God without something happening to you. There's a great place in in Acts 17 where Paul is uh, preaching this uh, sermon. And uh, he, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely true in life. It happened historically. And what it means is God's going to come and judge the world one day. And this proof of that is the resurrection of Jesus. And it, it's this amazing verse in, uh, in verse 32 where it says this. The people who heard Paul, some were interested and wanted to hear more. Some repented and some wanted to kill Paul. But you notice nobody heard Paul's sermon and goes, huh, interesting. And just walks away. Or that's good for you. Or, you know, what you believe, what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe. Everybody said, either that's true, I want to believe that, or kill him. Look, when you get in the presence of God, there is either dancing or death. There is no, hmm. There is no interesting. That was, you know, enlightening. Or good for you. It's either or. It's either, I want to dance. Or let's kill him. The idea is this. Look, if you've been a Christian for a long time and you're not free or you're bored, you haven't come to the ark. Because what happens when you get before the ark is it exposes you for who you are. I mean, this is an amazing picture across this chapter. David, Uzzah, and Michael, who they are inside gets utterly exposed and brought out into the light before everybody else here. When you get before God's presence, who you are deep down that you want to hide from everybody else gets exposed. And that either makes you run, it makes you scared, or it makes you a Christian. The fear, though, it will, is what will rob you of the dance. 
the fear will make you turn to something incredibly spiritually deadly. And we see that secondly in the death of Uzzah. I want to show you this. We've got to examine his life in order to make sense of this. Because what Uzzah turns to destroys the fear, excuse me, destroys the possibility of dance. Look in verse 7. This is what happens to Uzzah. It says this, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. Well, what was his error? Well, look back in verse 6. It says this, When they came to the, to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. Okay, so what happens here is the, they're bringing the ark into Israel, and they, they put it on this oxen cart. And if you're like me, you know, you, you didn't grow up riding oxen carts. Um, an oxen cart is not like, you know, a horse. It's not like you ride it and you're like, whoosh, you know, get along little doggies. I mean, it, it was, nobody rode it or pulled it or anything. It just pulled and you walked alongside of it. So here's what's happening. You know, they're bringing the ark into Israel. It's this amazing picture of everybody celebrating and going crazy. And the ark sort of, you know, probably hits a rock or something like that. Uh, excuse me, the, the cart hits a rock or something and stumbles. The ark's going to fall off the cart. And Uzzah reaches up his hand to keep it from falling on the ground, puts it back up, and bam, he's struck and he's dead. Now, instantly, you know, the, the reaction is, well, why did this happen? Well, okay, if you go back and read Exodus 25, when God says, here's how I want you to make the ark, make it exactly like this, make the measurements precisely like this, build it exactly like this, put four rings on either side, carry it with poles, and only Levites may carry it, and no one may ever, ever touch it. And so there was a law. No one may ever touch the ark. Nothing can ever touch this. In fact, this is how you must carry it. This is what must happen. You must carry it this exact way or else. Now, imagine the situation. I mean, they're bringing the ark into Israel. There's incredible dancing. I mean, they are celebrating like we have returned the presence of God to our place. God is coming back into Israel. Everyone's dancing. Everyone's rejoicing. It feels like this is the way it's meant to be. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this party, bam, this guy drops down and dies. Now, yes, he broke the rules. But most people think that we should take this like this. That maybe, okay, Uzzah broke the rules, but he had the good intention in mind. He didn't want to let the ark fall on the ground. He didn't want to let it be destroyed. But rules are rules, and so God destroys people because of rules. That's not, I don't think, what happens here. Because the great mistake for Uzzah is not that he broke the rules. It's that he misunderstood who he was, and he misunderstood who God was. And this is a severe principle for this lesson. You've got to, you've got to see what, what Uzzah saw, or excuse me, what Uzzah missed. The great spiritual mistake is to not know who you are before God. Because what Uzzah does here is he doesn't think anything's wrong with him. He doesn't think there's a problem with him. Because what he, what he sees is when this, when this ark is going to fall off, Uzzah's mind does this. He goes, that dirt on the ground will taint the ark more than my hand touching it. And so the dirt on the ground is dirtier than I am. So it, it's better for me to touch it than the dirt on the ground. And what he sees is that, look, I can touch the ark. I can do that. It's, it, I know what I'm doing. I'm okay. I'm a holy man. I'm bringing this back to Israel. And God says, no. Listen to Eugene Peterson. He says this in his commentary. This was not the mistake of the moment. 
it was a piece of his life of Uzzah's lifelong obsession of managing the ark. You see, here's the criminal here's the criminal thing for Uzzah. You and I think we can touch the ark. That we're not that bad. That we're not that dirty. That we're not that messed up. And we can touch it. We can touch God. We can manage God. We can put him around. And part of the reason we can do that is because we're so good. Because we're okay. Because we're not out there doing all, you know, destroying other people. We're bringing the ark back to Israel. There's nothing really that messed up with us. Fear alone will make you self-righteous. The fear of Uzzah was what made it, what, this is what makes him do, is it makes you think you've got to rely on yourself in order to touch the ark. And it turns you into self-righteous. And self-righteousness is what is lethal in killing this church. This is the thing this morning. The, the, there are all sorts of problems in this world. There are all sorts of issues going on in our community. I'm telling you, the crux of this passage this morning is to criticize you and me. And to say, be careful. If you think you can touch the ark based on how you live, based on what you know, based on your view of the world, you're going to die. And it's killing you, and it's killing the church, and it's killing everything. We are so self-righteous. What is self-righteousness? Here's what self-righteousness is. The bold confidence in the merits of your approach to anything. It's when you're utterly confident in your approach to parenting, your approach to marriage, your approach to your job, and everyone else is wrong, and you're right. Jesus gives a great illustration of this in Luke 18, this parable of the tax collector and the sinner, and he puts two people side by side who were completely socially different. One who is the incredible outcast and one who is someone just like in this room, someone who believes the Bible, trusts God, wants to honor God, wants to keep the law and stuff like that. And he demonstrates this, Jesus does, in this man's prayer. He says, the, uh, this is the self-righteous prayer. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like that pagan over there. That's what self-righteousness is. It is the bold confidence in your life versus somebody else and versus anybody else. And it makes you critique everything different from you. And it makes you completely unable to be criticized. Can people criticize you? How do you deal with that? When somebody criticizes you, do you know why you can't handle that? Because you're so self-righteous. Do you know why you critique everything? Why all you do all day is, you know, in your, in your mind, critique your friends. Critique your family. Critique your coworkers. Critique this church. It's because we're just plagued with self-righteousness. How do you deal with people who are different from you? In your, in your marriage... How do you deal with people who have different views than you on spiritual matters, on, on worship issues, on politics? How, how do you relate to those people? Because if your self-righteousness, what, what, what you'll do is it will make you fluctuate on a plane of constantly above people and constantly below people. Look, you will be above everybody else who's different from you that you know you can prove them wrong. But anyone else who seems smarter than you, stronger than you, better than you, you will constantly feel below them. And your life will be on this fluctuating plane of false, you know, false self-esteem and false destruction over and over and over again. And it's because we're so self-righteousness, so self-righteous. And we have the huge problem of Uzzah. Look, the biggest problem in our church is not that we don't know the Bible enough 
Our biggest problem is not that we don't do enough mercy. Our biggest problem is not that we, you know, have relationships that are falling apart. Our biggest problem is we're so self-righteous. And it's why we don't dance. And it's why we're not free. And it's why non-Christians are not overflowing in our churches. Because they don't want to come and just be destroyed by us. Our, our, our self-righteousness is cancer to ourselves and to all the relationships around us. And God looks at that and goes, no. All through the Bible, this is much more heinously criticized than any sexual immorality, than any drunkenness, than any abuse of money or something like that. All through the Gospels, people who are struggling with obvious external social sins, Jesus always calls them to repentance, but gently. But to the Bible-beaten self-righteous, Jesus looks at him and goes, you brood of vipers. You will never be in my kingdom. And he walks through the temple, kicking tables over, saying, how dare you taint my father's house? Look, the criticism is for us. And God hates this sin more than anything. When we think, I can touch the ark, it's no big deal. It's totally fine. Why does God do this? Is he just mean? Is he just harsh? Let me illustrate it. No, he's not that way. Let me illustrate it through this way. Okay, imagine, um, you know, I, I just knock on your door this afternoon and show up and say, hey, uh, can I come in for a drink? Can I come in for some coffee or something like that? And I just kick my feet up and we start watching the NFL game. I mean, that's a little awkward. But, uh, you know, unannounced, uninvited, something like that. Imagine if I do the exact same thing to the, you know, the White House. Hey, Brock, what's up? Got anything to drink in here? Let's turn the game on. I mean, you know, I'm going to be strung up and shot, and probably justifiably so. You know, okay, same action, two different obvious approaches. Why? I mean, one's a little awkward. One is a capital offense. It's because of who I am and who he is. Look, God is saying this, you can't just walk in my house because of who I am. You can't just walk in the president's house and you can't walk in this presence. You can't just walk in who you are. And if you do that, you're self-righteous and you don't get it. And God says, be careful. It's, just, it's going to destroy the church. God is holy and we are terrified of that. Here's what Uz's biggest problem was. It's like you and me, we just don't believe the gospel.